as, uh, as we just told me to do it. So, um, so that was my task for the month of February at home was to redo the, the shower. When we bought our place, the bathroom, uh, the bathroom walls in, this, in our particular bathtub area, they were really kind of gross. They were, the tiles were outdated. There were some cracked tiles. And there was this handle that we had in the shower that, that was from the previous owners, but the, the, the screws that were holding it in place, the rust had begun to seep through and, and seep down the tiles. And it was just really kind of an eyesore uh, in, in, as a whole. And, and so I, I decided, well, the first thing I need to do is get rid of the tiles. And, and so I, I'd seen, I've watched enough Property Brothers to know that you have to smash out how to smash out drywall now. And so I did that and I disconnected the plumbing. And so I pulled out all the old drywall as well. And eventually I was able to cut back a portion of the floor tile. And, and it, was, it was enough, just enough that I was able to remove the bathtub. After I was finished the demolition process, there was basically this empty cavity where our shower and bathtub once were. All that was left now was basically just the studs and just a little bit left over of insulation. Now, the reality, of course, is that demolition is just, yeah, that's the easy part. That's just the fun part. As you, as, and that's just the beginning of the renovation process. Because after I pulled everything out, the next thing I needed, needed to do was replace it with something better. That's how renovations work, isn't it? We don't tear everything out only to replace it and make, and make it worse. That's just vandalism. Demolition always starts with the underlying assumption that the change that is occurring is happening for a reason, and that the transformation that is occurring will be an upgrade over what was once removed. In his book, Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard writes these words, the greatest need you and I have, the greatest need of collective humanity is a renovation of our heart. That spiritual place within us from which outlook, choices, and actions come has been formed by a world away from God. Now it must be transformed. Now over the last two weeks, we have been exploring 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, where David has undergone his own personal heart renovation. Where we've seen a series of sin choices from David that have exposed some major foundational issues that need to be renovated in David's life. Two weeks ago, we started the series by just asking the simple question, who am I? And we considered the possibility that if we were made in the image of God, like, like Genesis 1.26 tells us, then you and I have the capacity to think and love and relate to others and, and govern in a way that is distinct from the rest of creation. David, though, showed us the problems that our sin choices can create in our lives where it caused fear and shame and innocent people got hurt and ultimately distanced from God, then those are just some of the obvious ones that we see from David. Fortunately, in, these, in this avalanche of sin in David's life, God extended an invitation question to David, where are you? To the prophet Nathan. And we talked about that last week. It's in this invitation question that God begins to invite David to start a renovation project in his own life. Part of the demolition process in David, though, includes the practices of confession and repentance. Where David begins a partnership with God and acknowledges that there are some major issues in David's life and some renovations need to take place. 
So David starts simply by acknowledging the decisions that put him in this situation, and he rejects that old way of life. These two chapters then become the documented renovation process that God is doing in David's, in David's life. The question we are asking this morning is the question, well, what's next? Because now David has gotten rid of that old way of life. He's confessed it. He's rejected it. So what comes next? What happens now that there is this cavity or this vacant space where the, <clears throat> excuse me, where the old way of life once was? What do you fill it with now? What's next? Because as much as rejection is a rejection of an old way of life, more importantly, it's an embracing of a new way of living. And so as we ask the first two questions, who am I and where am I? And they begin to provide significant spiritual answers that help initiate the spiritual renovations in our lives. The third question, what's next, helps begin to guide our next steps with what life will look like after we, after we replace that void with the things God intended for us. As we've considered the impact of David's own salvation narrative these last couple of weeks, there must be something that you and I can look forward to within our own salvation narratives that give us hopeful anticipation of a life rooted and focused in Jesus. And I think we actually begin to get a glimpse of that as we look, as we look in the middle of the second crisis event in David's life in these, of these two chapters, where we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15 and 16. It says, Later the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow, Bathsheba, bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. Admittedly here in, this, in these two verses, there are a number of really uncomfortable points in these two verses that are important for us to wrestle with. Things like God afflicting a child with a fatal illness, an innocent child dying because of someone else's sin. Those are, those are difficult questions for us to work through, to, for us to kind of get a picture, kind of reconcile what is, how do these verses work with what we understand about God? And so I want to I acknowledge those questions are there. I want to honor those, that, that, that tension. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to do anything about it today. I want to be able to address it and give it, give it the time it deserves at another time. But I think the, what we see here in David... I think the contrast we see from David as he responds to the crisis in chapter 12 compared to how he handled his first crisis in chapter 12 is important for us to note. Where we see in, in chapter 11 a man who did whatever he could to take matters into his own hands. But within the crisis of his dying son, I think we begin to see a different David. You see, I think David has finally understood, he's given up on this idea of trying to, that he doesn't need to try to be his own savior anymore. Instead, he's begun to recognize that the reason that this situation is happening was because he didn't see God in the first crisis. This time, David turns to God and asks God to show mercy on his son. And like many of us know, sometimes even the most sincere, earnest prayers week of prayer and felt the way we prayed for. And that's the case here. Where after a week of prayer and fasting from David, 
eventually his son tragically dies. That's the second innocent victim who's died because of David's sin choices. The fact that David seeks after God, though, rather than trying to do things himself, I think says a lot about the transformation that's actually beginning to happen inside of David. I think it's what happens next, though, after the son dies, that I think actually begins to even show an even deeper continuation of the heart and mind renovation in David's life. Because in verse 20, after the baby dies, it says, David got up from the ground and he washed anointed himself, and changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and, then, and when he asked, they served him food, and he ate. And then in verse 24, it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, went to her, and slept with her. This is really unusual response from a grieving father. He has a bath. He anoints himself, basically he just puts oils and lotions on. He gets dressed, worships God. After he's done worship, he goes for supper. So what's happening here? Because David's response to the death of his son seems really odd to me. And I'm actually not the only one. Because David's servants in verse 21, they asked David, he said, what's this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you got up and ate food. Basically what they're saying to David here is, this, this is backwards from our customs. You mourned while the child was alive, and based on David's response, now it just seems like life is back to normal now that his son is dead. This, what we see from David here, it just seems more like Sabbath, more than mourning or grief. But I think David's response gives us a model of someone whose life has been flipped upside down, where the renovation has been taking place. Where we see from David, who was fully incontinent in chapter 11 when he saw Bathsheba, totally unable to resist his own desires of himself. He couldn't help himself. He had zero self-restraint. Contrasted with chapter 12, where we see this life who has been submitted to God. And out of his prayer and fasting, David calls out to God for compassion for his son. But the real evidence of transformation happens when he's still able to trust God in spite of the result. Let me say that again. That out of his prayer and fasting, David calls out to God for compassion for his son. But the real evidence that we see in David the real evidence of transformation happens when David is still able to trust God in spite of a result that he didn't desire. I think it's in these crisis moments that we see, that we really begin to see the benefit of the helmet of salvation that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 6. Where our resolve to do the things that we may want to do is really enticing. But the helmet of salvation postures us to have the mind of Christ even when crisis arrives. When Paul tells the Ephesians to put on the helmet of salvation, the Ephesians, they would have understood the type of imagery, the Roman soldier imagery that Paul was talking about here as he's referencing this. Again, it was the type of helmet that didn't just protect his head, but it protected the neck and the shoulders as well. And so when a Roman soldier went to war, the enemy would often would be wielding what was known as a broadsword. 
Now, a broadsword was a sword that was maybe four or five feet long. The handle required two hands to hold, to, just to carry it, to hold it. It's not a weapon of finesse. These were big, heavy, violent weapons. If an enemy got sword got, if an enemy, enemy's broadsword got a clear, clear contact on someone's head, it had the ability to crush their skull or just simply remove their heads entirely with one swing. But combined with the rest of the armor, these helmets would actually be able to absorb or at least deflect some of the impact from these attacks. Spiritually speaking, the attacks from Satan in the midst of the crisis can be in the form of anger and doubt. God, how could you let this happen to me? I thought you were good. Or fear and anxiety. God, how am I going to pay my bills this month? I thought you would provide for me. Or selfishness and expectations. God, I did so much for you. I don't deserve this. And these are the types of mentalities that are more a reflection of prioritizing our kingdoms rather than God's. What we see from David's response to his child's death is the evidence of someone who has truly turned from self-reliance and has died to himself so obviously that in the midst of significant loss, he was still able to keep the mind of God rather than his own. It's in David's response that we actually see visible evidence of godly repentance here. Where we see the difference in David's mindset from chapter 11, where he tried to take matters into his own hands. This time, though, he turns towards God. And he aligns himself with the character and nature of God instead. It's in God's nature and character that David is able to reconcile what's happened in his life. We see that everything was different about David's response to crisis from chapter 11 to chapter 12. I think I read this verse last week, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says that anyone, who? Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new creation, a new person. That the old is gone and a new life has begun. That means that regardless of how large your sin choices have been, the quantity or the depth, that there's still space, that there's still opportunities for a new life, that we can still be transformed by Jesus in spite of our past. It's not our sin that disqualifies us, it's our response to sin that disqualifies us. Let me say that again. It's not our sin that disqualifies us, it's our response to sin that disqualifies us. Where we can choose to respond the way David does in 2 Samuel 11. We can try to hide and avoid and deny our sin. That disqualifies us. Or we can turn to Jesus. And he is always, always, always ready to save and restore us to the people we were created to be as bearers of his image and to live a life that actually reflects him. Let me say that again, that Jesus is always, always ready to save and restore you and I, all of us, to the people that we were created to be as bearers of his image 
and to, and to live a life that actually reflects Jesus in our lives. So how do we live a life that reflects Jesus in our lives? Well, in John 15, 4, Jesus says, Remain in me, and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I think David's life is evidence of this truth, that the closer we stay with Jesus, the more our lives reflect Jesus. The image here points us to the fact that the only thing we contribute to our, the only thing we contribute to our own spiritual renovation and salvation is a willing attitude and spirit to stay as close to Jesus as possible through confession and repentance. And it's in this posture of remaining still that we actually begin to practically place our trust in Him and allow Him to restore us according to His will. John 10.10, Jesus says, I've come to give life and life to the full, abundant life. I think the implication here that Jesus is making is that when we try to live lives that are separate and distinct and apart from God, it leads to death. I think David, though, provides a really tangible example of the contrast between a life apart from God and a life with God. So just like David, all of us can actually begin to experience the reality of being restored, or as Jesus puts it in John 3, 3, be reborn. Where we actually die to an old way of life. We, we bury that. We say, I'm no longer going to live in that way. But that we are now resurrected. That we are reborn into a new life rooted in Jesus. That's why the imagery of baptism is so beautiful, where it becomes this vivid expression that symbolizes exactly how the salvation process happens in our lives, where we go down into the water, we die to that old way of life, and we stay in the water because that's where death is. We bury that old way of life, and as we come, come up out of the water, we are reborn into a life that is committed to remaining with Jesus a new life, a reborn life. Maybe for some of us this morning, maybe baptism is something that you need just to consider to, to celebrate how Jesus has restored you, how he's rescued you, how you've been reborn. Where the life that comes out of being resurrected and reborn is a life rooted in relationship with Jesus. After we have been reborn, we choose the mind and heart of Jesus over our own. The best way to discover the hardened mind of Jesus is just simply by spending time with him. We talked about the idea of confession and repentance last week, but there's also the Bible and prayer. I learned this a couple of weeks ago that typically as Christians, we, we, use, we call sections of the Bible passages or scripture. But in Jewish tradition, they actually call them portions. I love this idea because it's a food analogy. Like we, we all need food for survival. What if portions of Scripture are what our spiritual survival is dependent upon as well? In the same way that we might add coal to a steamboat to fuel it so it operates, Scripture fuels us to know Jesus more intimately. And as we are fueled by God's Word, it influences how we live our lives. It impacts how we love people. It impacts how we make decisions. It impacts how we view the world. It even impacts how we experience tragedy and crisis in our lives. 
When we are fueled by God's word, we discover the character and heart of Jesus who loves us and extends grace and longs deeply for personal relationship with each of us. And in the same way that confession and repentance are a way to create this blank canvas or this empty space inside of us, so that the the renovations God wants to do in our heart and mind happen when we fill our lives with God's word and his presence. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that our lives are meant to reflect his character and nature to the people around us. That there's a mission that you and I are called into as bearers of his image. That the helmet of salvation is actually for a purpose beyond ourselves too. You see, the design of the helmet that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 6 is important. As I mentioned, it covers the head, shoulders, and neck. The only thing that's not covered in, this, in, the, in the helmet, though, is the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. Why is that important? It's everything we need in order to see what's happening around us and to communicate to those alongside of us. The helmet of salvation then helps us in assisting others who are in the same renovation of the heart and mind as us. So this morning, as we ask that question, what's next? I think what we see from Jesus is an invitation to live. To live a life that's full of the richness of relationship that God intended us to live in Eden. To reflect and live out God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. To live a life like David's, whose life had been restored by God, who had been reborn. Now, I said earlier that Jesus, in John 3, 3, says that we are to be reborn or born again. Jesus also adds in that verse that it's not until we are reborn that we can see the kingdom of God. That it's not until we are reborn and the renovation of our heart and mind happen that we're able to shift our perspective from ourselves onto Jesus and onto others. I also reference John 15. That as we consider our role as a vine remaining on the branches, the intent of the vine is to what? Bear fruit. That by remaining in Jesus, by being reborn in Jesus, that we would reproduce what Christ has done in us. That we would reproduce what Jesus is doing us in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our retirement centers, in our schools. Where we don't simply become consumers, but we actually become producers. We don't remain in that infant stage of rebirth but that we grow up, we contribute, that we actually begin to join the mission that God has set for us. Where our mission objective then is to go and make disciples, to help others grow to be more like Jesus as well. I think many of us, I think, I think, I think that for many of us, we're all looking forward to the time the pandemic is over. I don't think I'm alone in that. And many of us, I think, are wondering, what's next? What will life look like moving forward? So this morning, I just want to offer some really practical ways that I think we can step into the fullness of that relationship intimacy, relational intimacy that the what's next question invites us into. Here's one. Enjoy portions of Scripture daily. That as you enjoy those portions 
that you would ask these two questions. What is this portion showing me about having the mind of Christ? Two, what do I need to do in order for that to happen? Let me say that again. What is this portion of Scripture showing me about having the mind of Christ? Two, what do I need to do in order for that to happen? Maybe that probably includes some element of confession and repentance. Here's a second thing that we can do. Start praying about what mission or purpose God has already brought into your life so that you can show the image of God to the people around us. Again, maybe it's in your schools. Maybe it's your workplace, the senior center. Maybe it's in your families or your neighbors. Because here's the thing. God has actually already placed those people in your life for a reason. And maybe this week, we can partner with Jesus in the salvation process that he wants the people in your life to experience as well. There's some other really practical things that you could consider in the life of Thornhill. Maybe you want to consider joining a small group. As provincial restrictions are starting to, or I'm really hopeful that that will begin to lift some things here that we can begin to offer some other ministries here at the church. That Maybe that's a fall event. I, I don't know. But maybe that's something for you just to begin to pray about. How you can be, get connected in a community, maybe in, in, in a small group. Or maybe consider becoming a member. Or, as I talked about earlier, baptism. Those are things that are really practical ways that you can, you can actually contribute to the discipleship of yourself, but also contribute to the discipleship of others. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up this morning. This morning, though, as we develop relational intimacy within Thornhill Baptist Church, both with each other and with Jesus, as we ingest portions of God's Word and abide with Jesus, we discover that the answer to the what's next question is the fullness of intimacy with the people in our lives and with Jesus. Where we discover that what's next is to know Jesus and to be known by Jesus. That what's next means to know others and to be known by others. This morning, maybe God needs to do some renovations in you so that you could potentially reflect the image of God in your life. And yet for others here, maybe you're beginning to recognize that there's this, this gap that you've cleared out. There's, you've done, the, you've done the, 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 the easy part, but it's been sitting vacant for so long. Maybe today, maybe you've died in an old way of life, but maybe today you need to be reborn into Jesus. And yet for others, maybe you've been really good about abiding with Jesus, just hanging out with him. But maybe you've just missed that, that little sliver, that little piece about, about embracing that invitation into purpose and mission. Maybe there's others who feel like you have been disqualified. So you've been hiding it. You've been avoiding 
Maybe this is an opportunity this morning to, for you to realize you haven't been disqualified. Your response has disqualified you, but this is an opportunity to be requalified, to turn to Jesus. Wherever you are on the next, on, on your spiritual renovation of the heart and mind, Jesus is beginning to ask the question, what's next? What is your response going to be? Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so grateful that you don't allow us to stay in the space where we are right now. That you invite us to, to move forward. You invite us into what's next. I'm so grateful that you don't just leave us alone while we do it. That you actually walk with us. That you care for us. That you actually guide us as we follow your steps. That you strengthen us. That you give us the courage we need. Lord, I'm so grateful for your grace. So grateful for your love for us. This morning, Jesus, as we continue to, to worship, there's a response that, is, that you're stirring in many of us. Would you help us to be able to know how can we respond in the way that is going to, to point us towards you, to experience you in a fresh new way today? God, our desire is to answer that question, what's next? Give us the ability, the courage to do it now. Amen.